Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, it's good to have you. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors at Crosswinds, and we are studying the book of Genesis here on, uh, at Spirit Lake as well as on our Spencer campus as we try to stay in lockstep as we work our way through this amazing book. And today we are in Genesis chapter 32. So get your Bibles out or take out your outlines that are in your bulletins there and as you get ready to study the very Word of God. In this section of Genesis, we've been studying the life of a man named Jacob. And there was a very pivotal moment that happened in uh, Jacob's life last week. Uh, Jacob had been gone. He's been gone out of his hometown, the promised land, for about 20 years. And he found himself working for his father-in-law. And for 14 of those 20 20 years. He worked for his father-in-law, and he worked like a virtual slave. Laban was his name, and Laban didn't really pay him well, and he was sort of stuck there working for Laban, and it wasn't going too well. But uh, after about 14 years into it, uh, he and Laban were able to come to an agreement that Jacob could keep the odd sheep, the strange sheep, the speckled and spotted and striped sheep. And last week we learned that that was usually a low percentage of that were born into the flock. So Jacob was starting a little business on the side called the Odd Sheep Company. And therefore Laban's flock would be the pure sheep company. And that's the way it was going to work. And so Jacob was going to work with the rejects looked like a good way that Jacob could at least get a little bit of side money, pay for his four wives and a number of 12 kids, you know, a way to put some income and food on the table. But Laban cheated him once again, shafted him whenever he had the chance. Before Jacob had a chance to go get his initial paycheck from that day, Laban took all the spotted and speckled and striped sheep and goats out of the herd, sent them three-day journey away. So when Jacob went to go get his paycheck, there was none there. And it looks like Laban tricked him once again. But see, the interesting part is God is the one who always has the last laugh, isn't he? Because when it came time for the new sheep and goats to be born, there is a disproportionately large amount of speckled and spotted and striped ones that were born. In fact, over the last six years of Jacob's life in Padam Aram, he went from a very poor man to a very wealthy man as God shifted the, the flocks uh, away from Laban into Jacob's hands because they were all being born by the criteria that would go to Jacob, the speckled, spotted, and striped ones. And uh, it's pretty interesting for us to see that. And today, um, oh, by the way, and what happened is Jacob eventually got up and he left and he, he went. And when he was leaving, uh, Laban, his father-in-law, sort of hunted him down. But the night before they were to meet, God spoke to Laban in a dream saying, Do not touch Jacob. And so God spared Jacob from what would have been a disaster. And this morning we, we pick up the story. 
and we learn what is the next chapter in Jacob's life. And we're going to see there are two more lessons that Jacob learns, essential lessons that Jacob doesn't need to learn just for uh, spiritual growth, but lessons that we need to learn for spiritual growth as well. Let me tell you what they are right up front. The first lesson is the importance of restoring broken relationships. Jacob learns the importance of going out of his way and doing what is tough to restore the broken relationship with his brother Esau. The other thing Jacob is going to learn is the lesson that comes only when you get to the end of yourself. When you get to the point of complete brokenness, brokenness and hopelessness, when you learn that you really don't rely on yourself for everything, but you can only rely on God and God alone. It's a lesson that Jacob needed to learn. It was a point that Jacob needed to get to in his life, and it's also a lesson that all of us need to learn at some point as well. So let's go ahead and dive in. Genesis chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. Then he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, this has to be one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture. I mean, the angels show up to Jacob. I mean, they must be impressive. I would think angels would be pretty cool. And what do we get about it? Like one verse. I mean, I can't even preach anything out of that one. There's just not much to say. But he does call this place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Because Jacob has this realization that it's not just him and his family and his flock that are there, but there's actually a whole host of angels that are there with him because God has pulled back the curtain, as it were, and let Jacob know that he is actually not alone in that place. That God has his vast angelic hosts with him, and they're protecting him. And here is where it's interesting because it's very clear in the Hebrew that there is a great parallel between this chapter and Genesis chapter 28. You may remember what happened in Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob was going into the land. He went to the place called Bethel, and he had this vision of what we often call Jacob's ladder. And he saw the angels ascending and descending on the earth, and he realized that he wasn't alone, but God's angels were going to be with him when he left the promised land. And now he has a very similar vision. He realizes that God's angels are with him now, even now as he's coming back into the promised land. And he is not alone. Now, why? Why is this so important for him to know and for us to know? Here's the point. Many times we get in positions where it feels like we are all alone. That nobody is there to rescue us. Nobody is there to save us. And we have to save ourselves. In fact, remember this earlier in Jacob's life. When it came time to get the family blessing because his father Isaac was sick. And Isaac, it looked like, was going to give the, the blessing to his older son Esau. And Jacob says, that's not right. I, by prophecy, I'm supposed to get it. So what did Jacob do? He tricked. He deceived. He fooled his father so he could get the blessing. You didn't need to do that, Jacob. 
Because what you see in this world is not just the horizontal stuff, but there's a whole vertical world that is taking place around you. God's angels are actively involved in his life. They're actively involved in our life as well. Remember the situation where uh, Jacob was fleeing from Laban. And he's running away, and Laban is chasing him down. And it doesn't look like Laban's going to be too nice. And Jake, Laban may sort of beat him up a little bit. He's sort of got an army with him at this point. And what did God do? Broke into Laban's dream during the night and said, Don't you dare touch Jacob. That's evidence that Jacob was never alone, but that God's angels were watching and guarding him the whole time that he was out of the promised land and even when he's coming back into the promised land. Look what it says here in Psalm 37, verse 4. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And here's my point for you. As you go through life, there's going to feel like there are times when we have to save ourselves. Times where we have to maybe not tell the whole truth. Times where we have to be like Jacob, deceptive to get what we think is God's will done. Here's the, here's the truth, folks. We don't need to do that. Because what we see going on in our world is not just the horizontal stuff, but God's angels are watching out for you and they are protecting you and they are working in your life just like they were working in Jacob's. The application point is this. You are not alone. If God would be so gracious as to pull back the curtain, you would see a vast angelic world of His angels that are looking out for you because He cares for you too. Amen? Amen. The story continues. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. Well, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, well, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now, this is not necessarily apparent in the text as you read it through, but it's, it's, it's apparent when you look at the geography. Jacob is going back into the promised land, but what he does as he gets back into the promised land is he sends emissaries to Esau, and he's in, he wants to connect with Esau. But here's where the interesting part is. Esau, if you look at previous chapters, has actually gone to Edom, which is actually far to the south. He's settled by Mount Seir. Jacob does not need to meet Esau to come back into the promised land. 
it is not a geographical necessity for these two brothers to connect. But why it is not a geographical necessity, it is a spiritual necessity. Because when Jacob left the promised land, he left literally running for his life. He was afraid that his brother was, would kill him because Esau was comforting himself in how he could efficiently kill Jacob. Now Jacob's coming back, and what we find is he is literally going out of his way to reconnect with his brother and to try and make things right. Even though the offense happened 20 years before this. And this is what I want you to realize. Jacob is not just sorry for what he did. But Jacob is actually going out of his way to make restoration for what he did. He is going out of his way to restore the relationship with his brother. And even notice his attitude. When he left for the promised, out of the promised land, he was very prideful. Because he said, I am the one who deserves the birthright and the blessing. But when he returns, he is very humble. He says, he calls Esau, my Lord. And he says about himself, he says this, tell Esau that I am your servant, Jacob. Now, he may not have legally relinquished the birthright, but what he is at least doing is attitudinally resist, relinquishing the air of superiority in this relationship. He's trying to restore this relationship. He's trying to come humbly and hum, be humble and humiliate himself to do whatever he can to make this relationship work. Because here's what you need to see. For there to be any spiritual progress in Jacob's life, he has to work on these broken relationships. And folks, if there's going to be any spiritual progress in your life and in my life, we have to work on those broken relationships we have too. Isn't that true? We can't just leave them out there like hanging chads. Even if they were broken 20 years ago in the past, you do whatever you have to to even go out of your way to try and make things right. So you can say, as long as, as much as it is, is within my power, I have gone out of my way to make things right with those that I have hurt. As much as you can within your power. Well, and it doesn't look like it's going to go that well. Because even though the emissaries have told Esau that Jacob is coming, um, what we find out is that Jacob, or Esau, actually is returning. And Esau is coming with 400 men. And I do not think they are all wearing party hats and blowing streamers. The idea is that this is the size of a small militia, a small army, and that Jacob is convinced that what is going to happen is that Esau, who was comforting himself and killing Jacob, is now going to carry out his plans once and for all. And picture the situation. Jacob is not in a good way. What does he have for his army? Four women, 
and a bunch of kids in diapers. What are you going to do? Throw the dirty diapers at your brother? I mean, that is not going to be like, yeah, yeah, I can tell. You've got grandkids. That's right. Yeah. I mean, trust me, that is not a good defense. It only lasts for a while. And what does he have? All of his stuff. All of his stuff is with me. He has absolutely no form of defense, whatever. He cannot retreat because behind him is Laban and his army. And if you look at this geographically on the map, he's only moved 16 miles forward past that uh, pile of rocks that he made with Laban where they said, we're not going to go past this and you're not going to go past that. So that's his dead end zone. And he's going to have Esau going to meet him in front. It's the pincer move. Two armies committed to his destruction and he is utterly defenseless. Are you beginning to see why he's stressed right now? Are you beginning to understand why he uh, um, is fearing what is about to happen? He is totally stressed because he is about to lose his family. He is about to lose all of his stuff and maybe even his own life. That is what is in front of him. And that is essential to understanding this entire chapter. So what does he do? First thing he does is he tries to adopt a practical strategy. I have so much stuff, I can divide them in two. And hopefully uh, Esau will attack and only kill one group and the other group will get away. The other thing he does is he goes to prayer. Now this is interesting. In the book of Genesis, there are very few prayers recorded. And in the book of Genesis, this is the longest and the largest prayer that Jacob prays. But why does he pray? Look at the context. When life is falling apart, he finally gets on his knees. Isn't that the way it works, guys? Anybody else been there? It's when you look like everything is falling apart that you finally are so broken that you call out to God in desperation. And that is exactly where he's at. And I know many people within the earshot of my voice know the exact same moment they've been at in their life. The same moment that Jacob's been at. Now, now let me just have a little fun with you. I was in uh, Sioux Falls this past week, and I saw what is probably the most interesting billboard. I had my wife snap a picture of it as I drove through the intersection. Go ahead and put that up. Sioux Falls atheists, are you good without God? Millions are. 98 million Americans are non-religious. Join us. Now, what cracks me up is this is the first time I've ever seen uh, a non-religious group recruiting people to something that doesn't exist. <laughs> it just cracks me up on that. But I thought to myself as we went through the intersection, like, okay, these atheists, they don't want to believe in God. That's great. But let me tell you something. If you are in J Jacob's moment with Laban and an army on your backside and Esau and an army on your front side, you would be praying. You would call yourself an atheist until that moment. You would really hope God exists and that He hears your prayer and answers it because that is exactly what is going on with Jacob. Not that he has not believed in God before. Not that he has not prayed for, to God before. But in this moment, he is on his knees in a big way. And here's what I want you to realize. Sometimes we go through life. And God puts us in a pincer move that's very similar to the one that Jacob is facing. 
where it looks like we are about ready to lose it all. Looks like disaster has come upon our world. And we think that God has allowed it to happen because He hates us. It's not true. God has allowed it to happen because He loves us. Because the largest growth, the largest steps of spiritual growth you will ever go through in your life are in some of the most difficult moments you ever face. Isn't that true? That's exactly Jacob's moment. Now let's look at his prayer. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. And now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers and the children. But you said, surely I will do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Let me just pull out a few points of his prayer. He says, God, you said you were going to do me good when I returned to the promised land. But like, I think there's a disconnect. You promised that you were going to do me good, but it looks like you're about ready to do me wrong. Everything's going to fall apart. And here's the point I want to make to you. In the short term, does it look like God is doing him good? No. In the long term of this situation, is God doing him good? Absolutely. Because God is getting him to the end of himself. God is getting him to place more and more of his weight and his trust in his identity and his hopes and his prayers in God alone rather than in himself. That's the good part. God, well, he said this earlier, God will sometimes bring us through very difficult situations in life. And it's to teach us to lean on him more rather than ourselves. Second thing, he said, I love this attitude. I'm not worthy. He just acknowledges God's goodness. God, you know, I went like with a stick when I came here. That's all I had is my stick. And now I'm coming back with two camps and you're the one who gave it all to me. Second thing, or the third thing he says is this. It's not just praying for myself. He says, but God, what about the women? What about the children? I love that he's not just thinking about himself anymore. He's thinking about others. The story continues. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 ram, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, and a partridge and a pear tree. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do these belong? Where are you going? 
and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, well, they belong to your servant Jacob, and they are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Instead of waiting to meet Esau to give him a present, what we find is he actually decided to send the present ahead of him. And if you do the math on this, by the way, these are about 550 animals that he sends. And he divides them into groups. So what happens is it's just wave upon wave upon wave of stuff that Esau gets that is being given to him as the two groups come together. And Jacob is hoping this will soften Esau's attitude and his disposition towards him. I mean, this is something that is a gift fit for the size of a king. And there's an interesting... Uh, interesting angle that becomes apparent in the Hebrew, because these gifts are called mincha. It's a Hebrew word. And what it means, mincha was a tribute that was usually either was given by a conquered kingdoms to the ones that conquered them, or, notice this, or it was given as a gift to someone to compensate for something they had done wrong. Let me say that again. It was given as a gift to someone to compensate for something they had done wrong. This was Jacob's way of saying to Esau, I was wrong. I shouldn't have tricked. I shouldn't have stolen. I shouldn't have deceived. I am admitting my guilt. And I'm not just saying I'm guilty to God. I'm willing, willing to say I'm guilty to you, and I'm even willing to put my money where my mouth is. A great deal of money, tons of money. I'll put lots of cash on the line, whatever it takes to try and restore our relationship and to make it right. I will do it. And here is the great point of application for each one of us. Earlier in the message, we learned the importance of trying to right broken relationships, if there's going to be any spiritual progress in our life. And here we go to the question of what is the extent to what we have to go to try and right those relationships, even if they've been broken for long periods of time. And the Scriptures tell us that we don't just try and right the relationship with God. We don't just try and say we're sorry. We put our money where our mouth is, and we go to great extents, even of personal sacrifice, to do anything we can to restore a broken relationship. As far as it depends on us, we will do whatever it has to take to bring a broken relationship back together.
even if it costs you cash. Because you have to give back what you took, even if it costs you lots of it. And here is what I want you to understand. The money that you may spend to restore that broken relationship is nothing compared to the joy of the relationship being restored and nothing compared to the honor that you will receive in God's eyes for having done it. God will honor you for acting in humility and gentleness and kindness and doing whatever it takes to make that relationship work. Trust me, it's worth every penny when it comes to God's eyes. The story continues. And by the way, it's about ready to get really, really weird. Remember how stressed he is at this point. The same night, he arose and he took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 children and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, well, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Very interesting passage. Let me see if I can put this together for you. Remember that Jacob is in a total panic at this moment, being pinched between two armies. He's there with his wife and his wives and his children, and it's like he can't handle it anymore. He, he's, he sends them across in the middle of the night, which is sort of a strange thing to do. Puts them on the other side of the river so he can be alone. And I picture him in this moment that he is sitting on his butt. His head is on his knees. His fingers are in his hair. And he is weeping. And he is pulling out his hair with stress and with worry because he knows that when the sun comes up that Esau will probably be there and Esau is committed to his destruction and it will be a total bloodbath. And that is what is he anticipating, the end of his world, the end of his life. And he's calling out to God, God, please save me. Do something. And God does. God attacks him. In the middle of the night, God grabs him 
punches him in the nose, whacks him on the lip, puts him in a chokehold, punches him in the ribs, kicks him in the side. Jacob responds back, and the two are wrestling together. God, Jacob and this unseen opponent that turns out to be God. And it's like they have an equal uh, wrestling ability going back and forth, back and forth. Now, I can tell you something. This would be totally exhausting. I come from a wrestling background, and I can tell you that six minutes is a long time to be on the mat. This is a lot longer than six minutes. This is all night long. Six minutes was a long time when I was 21. Six minutes is a lot longer now when I'm 47. The problem is Jacob is about 100. Try that on precise. What you need to realize is that Jacob thought he was at the end of himself. But with God beating him up, and by the way, I personally believe this is Jesus in this scene, beating him up, wrestling him, roughing him up all night long, going one-on-one, he is really getting to the end of himself because it's not six minutes. It's all night long. And to make things even worse, what happens? God touches his hip socket and takes it out of joint. Now, I can tell you something as a wrestler. When your hips don't work, you can't do anything, right? Yeah, the wrestlers are going, yeah, they understand. Because if you don't have any hip power, you have no strength at all. So you thought he was at the end of himself before this? from exhaustion and fatigue and blood going down his nose, now he's really at the end of himself because he cannot even stand. But somewhere in the middle of the night, things change because he realizes that he doesn't have an ordinary opponent, that his opponent is God himself. And he goes from trying to defend himself to trying to grab on to his opponent, and he will not let him go. Even though God is hitting him, hurting him, making life really difficult in this point, Jacob says, I am holding on to you, and I will not let you go until you bless me, until you rescue me. That is the one thing I need. Realize before this, Jacob was a guy who pretty much was one of those self-made men who could like trick and deceive and make things go his way. He could outwork most people because he was super strong. But at this point, he is at the end of everything. And still he says, God, the only thing that I have, the only thing I want, I'm not letting you go until you bless me, even if you're in the middle of hurting me. And folks, that is one of the best places to be, one of the hardest places to be. Let me explain it this way, and this is not like some super deep theology. It's just sort of my experience, and I think a number of you will concur. There's that time in your life where you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you become a Christian. 
But there's also another time in your life that is a quantum leap of spiritual growth where God takes away everything. And it looks like your world is going to fall apart. And maybe it seems like God is fighting against you. Maybe you're racked on a bed with sickness and in agony and in pain. And you say, God, take anything. But the only thing I won't let go is you because I need you to bless my life. I need you to sustain me and hold me. That is the one thing I need because I cannot do it myself any longer. And it's at that moment that you actually change inside. That the old self dies and sort of a new self is born. Now, now are you perfect in this? No. But what happens is your identity changes from no longer being about you and what you can do to being about God and what He has done for you and in you that you could not do for yourself. You see, Jacob's identity changes that night because uh, Jesus asks him, what's your name? He says, my name is Jacob, which means I'm a deceiver. That's what his name means, deceiver, liar, cheat. He says, your name is no longer deceiver, deceiver, liar, and cheat, but your name is from now on Israel. Israel means God wins. In your life, it's about not cheating and lying and deceiving, but God wins. You've given up. By losing and by just holding on, he's actually winning. Now, from that point forward, Jacob sort of walks with a limp. Every step he tapes, takes is a reminder of that one painful night when he actually got to the bottom of himself. And if you've been there, chances are that even today you walk with a limp. It may not be a physical limp like Jacob had. Maybe it's an emotional limp. Maybe it's a mental limp. Because that moment has so touched you and changed you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for bringing Jacob to the end of himself. Because it's only when he was brought to the end of himself that you could change his identity from who he was into who you wanted him to be. Was he that way perfectly from this point forward? No, of course not. But this was a huge moment of spiritual growth and change in his life. And I thank you, Lord, that this moment that Jacob faced was not just something in the Old Testament, but it's something that it happens in each of our lives as well. I thank you, Jesus, for the times you allow hard times into our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves, to teach us to pray, to teach us to rely on you. And we hold on to you, and we won't let you go until you bless us, sustain us, and care for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.